Okay, so tonight as we um, look to God's Word, let me just uh, preface tonight by saying that uh, my intention this evening is not in any way to... Uh, I'm not... I'm not when I get to the end of the message, I'm, my intention is not to, to make any sort of a political statement or anything of that nature, although it may sound that way. I'm simply using this text to apply to our situation so that we can together gain wisdom. So I just preface that because I got pretty wound up about this on Wednesday night. All right. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this particular word before us tonight. We thank you for this amazing gift in Hebrews. And Lord, we are grateful that you have preserved it and kept it for our instruction and our blessing. And so tonight we ask for ears to hear that we might respond rightly to what you have to say for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. So you've probably heard this phrase before, the job of the preacher is to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. I like this saying. I think it's a good saying. I think that I don't know who originally said it, and I don't know the context in which it was originally spoken, but I can tell you what it could have been. It could have been somebody who's been studying the book of Hebrews, because the book of Hebrews very much um, embodies this philosophy. And so uh, there's a pattern that I'll show you tonight, but this pattern runs, will run entirely through the book of Hebrews, back and forth and back and forth. So first of all, we see comforting. Comforting. The book of Hebrews comforts us by starting with 14 verses about the superiority of Christ, spoken directly to the hearts of the people suffering greatly for loving Jesus. So I told you when we started this study, the context in which it's spoken. These are people being persecuted for their faith. These are people who feel completely overwhelmed and overpowered by their culture. Uh, they're suffering greatly for their fellowship of the Lord Jesus. And so the book opens with this great comforting word about how Jesus is so superior. And we got to swim through the pages of those uh, verses early on for those first several weeks, and it was amazing. Then it flips, and there's an afflicting section, where in chapter 2, we come to five verses directly for those who are in danger of drifting. And so Pastor Matt was addressing this, we need to pay close attention to what we've heard, lest we drift. Now, here's who's not drifting. The people who are getting pulverized for following Jesus. In other words, when someone's in a crisis situation, you don't have to tell them, now pay attention to what I'm saying or you're going to drift. No one's drifting. It's a crisis. But the people who don't think they're in a crisis aren't necessarily in the midst of, aren't feeling the direct impact of the crisis. Well, then they're the ones that maybe start to nod off and aren't paying close attention. So he's afflicting those who are comfortable with don't drift due to the neglect of this great salvation. And then it flips back to comforting tonight. And so tonight as we read in 
Hebrews 2, beginning in verse 5, listen to these comforting words clearly directed at the group that needs comforting. Verse 5, for it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you would care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him for a little while, while it was made a little lower than the angels, namely Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by grace, by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So here we have this incredible passage, this greatly encouraging passage, and These words are words directed, they're comforting words directed at people facing the immensity of the sea of hostility that surrounds them. And as we take this apart tonight, you will see that the writer of Hebrews is being very intentional in making sure that they're speaking directly to those who are in these specific situations, as it's no doubt no different than What happens here this morning and what happens here all the time is that there are always these two categories of of hearers. There are those in danger of drifting and then there are those in danger of perishing. And that's always the dynamic going on at any given time. And so there's no doubt when you listen to these words, when you read them, when you understand them, you realize that they're feeling at the very least lonely and insignificant. And understandably so. The more more I just dive into the context of Hebrews and just think about the original hearers and you can't really understand the thrust of a, a book or a passage of Scripture until you first rightly divide what was the original author intending the original hearers to understand by the words that are spoken. And then you can begin to, to pull things apart and, and it begins to come alive to what we have before us. So, how are we going to be encouraged? Well, by God's original intention. That's how. You see, at the core of this whole section is a reminder of God's original intention through this passage from Psalm 8. The wonderful passage that that we're all familiar with. You know this passage, what is man that you would be mindful of him? Or the son of man that you would care for him? You made him a little lower, while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. So, this quote from Psalm 8, which, you know, there's, there's some places in Hebrews that make me want to laugh. And, you know, they're, it's just kind of comical. And one of them is the very first part of verse 6 where it says, It has been testified somewhere. Let me tell you something about the writer of Hebrews. 
Nobody in the New Testament, nobody knows the Old Testament better than the writer of Hebrews. The absolute, hands-down, most knowledgeable book in the New Testament about the Old Testament, obviously apart from Jesus, is the book of Hebrews. And so to say it has been testified somewhere is just hilarious to me because trust me, the author knows everything about the Old Testament. And so, um, interestingly enough, to get the concept of what's happening in Psalm 8, you, have to, you, you need to study the whole psalm. But let me suffice it to say, the verse preceding, what is man that you'd be mindful of him? Verse 3 of Psalm 8 says, The psalmist writes, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained. So the context of that statement is, as I stand out in creation, as I feel small and insignificant, as I, as I span the, the depths and the, the majesty of the universe above me, and I feel like nothing, in that context I begin to realize God, who made all of that and put all of that into place, cares about me? And cares about you? That is an astonishing reality. And that's what is the thrust behind all of this is that that God, the God who would, you know, uh, the, the problem is, is that if you've never, if you've never been in a place where you could really see the sky, and a lot of times when I talk about this, I realize that people look at me like I'm crazy, but that's just because you don't know. If you've never been in a place where you can actually see the sky, I don't know if there's a better place to see the sky than Hawaii. It is unbelievable. It's, you, you cannot even speak. You don't even have breath in your lungs when you look up at the sky from the big island of Hawaii, this dot in the middle. There's no light to, to take away from the heavens or in the middle of the desert or in a third world country, in the middle of the jungle of Brazil. The sky is, they're, they're the, it's the same sky, but you'll never see that sky here. Never. You'll never see it. You'll never see it in the United States. Well, maybe in some places, maybe in Montana or the middle of the desert, but never here. There's too much light. But if you can imagine how much light was there when the psalmist was saying this, oh, they could see the sky. They could see things you can't imagine. And the fact that the God who put all that together would care for us and love us, it's extraordinary. And so the thrust is that God's original and astonishing design was to give us dominion over all of this creation. Like, wow. To give all of that. Now, the fact that we receive dominion over creation. Now, this isn't new information. No, to anybody. Not new information. We're all familiar with the fact that Genesis chapter 1, God said, let us make man in our own image. After our likeness. 
Let us let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, over the live, livestock and all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. That's not new information. But it is important information to be reminded of. It is very important information to us tonight. And it's very important information to the original hearers of this word. You see, the author's message here is to the embattled church. And what he's saying is that although you feel insignificant, you're not. And God's original plan and purpose is still fully intact. Now, the reason we need to be reminded of this is because we find ourselves so oftentimes in situations where it doesn't appear that God's plan is intact. There's so many times in our lives where we look around and go, I don't really think it's intact. It doesn't really look to me like there's nothing in your circumstances, there's nothing in your physical realm of view that's going to be screaming at you that this plan is, in is, is intact. No. What's going to be screaming at you is that, no, everything's out of control and, and we're like a snowball running down the side of a mountain and everything's going to be a disaster. And that's because this original intention is in delay. It's delayed. It's just like everything else. So what the author wants you to do is the author wants you to, when, when the end of verse 8 says, now, in putting everything in subjection to him... He left nothing outside his control. What the author of Hebrews is setting you up to do is go, huh, wait a minute. Just to push back at that and go, huh, hold on. What are you talking about? Everything's not in subjection. That's not true. What do you mean? Something's wrong. That's exactly what he wants you to do. That's what you ought to do. And then the next sentence comes right in behind that at present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him right we don't because we're in delay just like we are with everything else in other words God's redemptive plan is still fully intact although we're not there yet we're redeemed our citizenship is in heaven, but we haven't fully received that. We haven't fully taken part in that, right? So, so you're, you're there, but not yet. It's in process. There's a, there's a delay. There's a pause, and it's all by the design of God. That God doesn't go boom, 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 so you can just get bored and just expect everything. That's not how he works. He does things his way. So... Why do we look around and go, wait a minute, I'm not sure that's true? Well, because in the delay, we're overwhelmed by the reality in which we live in, which is because of sin, our God-given dominion has been twisted. It's been perverted. It's been bent. It's misshaped. It's not as I was talking this morning. It's not as it was for Adam. We're not in the, although we're, although we're in the, creation that Adam was in it's a bent creation it's a broken creation it's like it's like the car that you got rear-ended and smashed up is that the same car well technically it's the same car 
but it's all jacked up. It's all twisted. It's, it's the same car technically, but operationally it's not the same. Well, operationally what we have around us is not the same. So we have broken people ruling over broken creation. And over the centuries, it's just become an ecological and sociological disaster. It's a fiasco. And in a lot of ways, it's supposed to be a fiasco. Right? Isn't that true? Isn't it supposed to be? Well, of course it is. In other words, if the world was as if the world wants you to believe it is, see, if the, if the message of the world were true, you'd have a huge problem. Because how are you going to run around telling people that the wages of sin is death when everything around them is going just hunky-dory and wonderful? I mean, good luck with that. You know, I'm always picking on, uh, you know, culture. And one of the things I've said a hundred times is, is that, you know, whenever you see a, a group of people out witnessing or out soul winning, they're always in the trailer parks. They're never in the gated communities. Why? And if you ask them, they don't really have a reason, but subconsciously they recognize that, you know, you knock on a half a million dollar home's door and the person opens, it's very hard to tell them how horrible everything is, right? Yeah, so they're in the trailer parks because they're more receptive. It's just human nature. And so it's, yeah, it's broken, but it's supposed to be broken. Like what, what, if the world were operating the way the world was intended to operate, then nobody would be worried about sin. Then be, the gospel message would just fall completely on deaf ears everywhere. So think about it. Just think about our current situation. Let's have a little fun with it. Our reign over the animal world is superficial at best, and what we achieve is by intimidation. Right? So basically, this is how it goes. What we say to the animal kingdom is, we're smarter than you. We have opposable thumbs, which you don't have. So therefore, we can build cages and things that will hold you in it. And if you don't obey us, then we're just going to eat you. But there's no cooperation there. There's none whatsoever. So here in a couple months, the season's going to change. And there's a contingency of guys in our church that are going to get these googly looks in their eyes and they're going to they know I'm they know I'm I'm watching them every Sunday I'm looking for them but buddy on Saturday don't even talk to them they don't even know what a football looks like cuz they're in the woods somewhere and what are they doing is there any cooperation they are Lying, cheating, and stealing. They're doing everything in their power to kill something that doesn't want to be killed. It is a war, man against beast. And they're, they're spraying themselves with unconscionable things. They are, they are 
utilizing every conceivable stealth mode tactic. They're up at night strategizing. They, they, become, they become weather forecasters. It's unbelievable. There's no cooperation there. It is a seek-and-destroy mission. Two opposing forces. No cooperation whatsoever. Total domination by intimidation and subjection. But I'm not sure that man always has the upper hand. But now think of the bigger problem. The bigger problem is not the animal kingdom. The bigger problem is that we can't rule over ourselves, let alone others. Look at just mankind and the fiasco we are. Do we appear to have dominion? Oh, boy. Negative. It's a fiasco. And so it doesn't matter where you look around the globe. There's a multitude of fiascos and, and you know, just immorality and corruption and just whatever. And it's not new. It's just rampant, right? And Why? Because everything's twisted. Because creation's twisted. We're twisted. The earth is twisted. It's groaning. Everything's groaning. It's all twisted. And it's supposed to be twisted because sin twists things. And so, if there ever comes a day where, which there won't, there'll never come a day where the creation in any way, shape, or form is going to fix itself. That's not going to happen. It's broken, and it can't fix itself. And so this is exactly what the original hearers of Hebrews were experiencing. They're looking around going, you know, I don't know. I don't know if what God said in Genesis is, it's not, it's not looking like this is on the horizon, like this is a possibility. And so this word of encouragement comes. Listen, yes, for the moment you don't see, but just hold on. Buckle up. So there's an ultimate intention. The ultimate intention. We've got the original intention. We've got this delay. And then the ultimate intention. In other words, we want to answer these questions. Well, are we ever going to get there? Are we ever going to, is dominion ever going to happen? Are we ever going to get to some a point where creation is in subjection, things work as they are uh, supposed to? Well, if so, then when is that going to happen? And the bigger question is, well, how in the world is that going to come about? Because it's not looking very promising. Well, just hold on, cool your jets, because here comes verse 9 right into this little space we've created to help us. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. So it's very specific. It's not open for debate. We're not, there's, no, there's no ambiguity about what we're talking about. This one that we see for a little while that was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because, again, very specific... Because, not for any other reason, but because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So this is Hebrews' way of coming up behind all of this angst and all of this 
uneasiness about what's going on around us and what we're seeing with our physical eyes, coming in behind that and saying, it's a resounding yes, 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 yes. Every, God's in control. He's got this thing. Don't panic. His plan is in full effect. Nothing's catching him off guard. Don't let the fact that to you it looks impossible, don't let that fool you. He's got it. So the answer is a twofold answer. First of all, in and through and by means of what Jesus has accomplished in his life, death, and resurrection and his current reign from heaven. So that's the first part. That he's crowned with glory and honor for suffering. So we need, to, we need to just, first of all, sort of go, okay, now, the way this is going to happen, the way we're going to get there is going to come through what Jesus has, past tense, accomplished in his life, death, and resurrection and his current reign at the right hand of the Father in heaven. But furthermore... In and through and by means of what Jesus will bring to pass. What's to come when he returns to this earth to consummate God's original purpose in having created mankind in the first place. So Paul comes along in Philippians chapter 2 and he says, And being found in human form... He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow on heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Right? Yes. And so it's through Jesus that all of this is going to be Accomplished. Now, the way Jesus did this is instructive for us to understand how we fit into this and how this operates, this truth operates in our life. And so our exaltation is accomplished through his humiliation. You see, he made himself, he lowered himself. He didn't consider it robbery to be in the form of man, yet he humbled himself even to the point of death. We're exalted through his humiliation. So now, if we take all that in, we consider all these realities, now what we need to do is is now begin to move forward into our present experience. How might we rightly think about and apply this today? Well, it will explain a lot of things to you if you would just look around with wisdom and knowledge. It, will, it really will because to me, this is just so helpful to have this conversation and to understand this. We live in a culture that has embraced what I refer to as the doctrine of progress which essentially believes that everything is moving towards a better, fuller, and more perfect end. 
And this has permeated every single corner, crevice, crumb of our culture. It has permeated everything, and it has permeated the church and most of the people in the church who aren't even aware that they believe this and subscribe to this. And it's not until you actually, you know, have a conversation with them about it, and then they think about it and go, wow, like, you know, because everything that you see and experience and all the messages that, that you receive are all predicated on this belief. This is the belief of the world in which we live in. And basically, I don't have time to get into the whole entire historical narrative, but basically, this is the way you can understand it. This is Darwinism on steroids. That's what it is. We've, we've taken this, this ridiculous little doctrine that a, of a man observing a field, and we have run to the uttermost with this understanding. We have literally shaped and applied it across the board, unilaterally in every arena of life. There's not one thing that has remained untouched from this ideology. It is just literally it's on steroids. And it's the opposite of what the Bible says. The opposite. Which is why the Scripture is continually becoming more and more, you know, it's more and more out. It's more and more outdated. It's more and more... Uh, it, it doesn't understand. It doesn't, it's not relevant. It doesn't because it's further and further away from everything else that's going on around it. Now, let me just, because I know that there, you, don't, you don't understand everything that I'm saying because it's not clear. So let's just clear the air. This is a simple way to understand exactly what I'm talking about. Simple, this is so simple. I don't believe you can watch the news one time. I don't care. You can pick any day of the week, any day of the month. Any, it doesn't matter. Christmas Day, tomorrow, tonight, it, you'll see this played out every single time. You can't read one secular uh, blog or news media outlet thing or anything. It, do, it doesn't even matter. I'm not even talking about the mainstream media. I'm talking about you'll see this everywhere. These simple implications. Number one, we ignore our true state until it hits us in the face. This is so obvious, it's ridiculous. It doesn't matter what it is. The world is utterly shocked, just speechless and shocked at, at any evil that's predicated. Just, and so as soon as there's a, some horrible mass crime or terrorist attack or, it doesn't matter what it is. They've discovered some house that a guy has 14, you know, out in the desert, some whack job's got 12 little kids buried and living in caves where he's training them to shoot people. And there's outrage, shock, and horror. And Boy, I mean, there's never a moment that I can't illustrate this because it doesn't matter what's going on. So what does the world do when suddenly there's discovered a compound in the middle of the desert where some freak show has taken place? Immediately, 
They're shocked. Well, you know, I can't believe this. Well, how? Well, and I'm just going, I, I'm, I mean, I'm sitting in my living room thinking, and why can you not believe this? What about this is shocking? I'm shocked that it doesn't happen more often. I'm not shocked that that happened. Why would you be shocked? I mean, what planet do you live on if that shocks you? What would lead you to believe in any realm of reality that to ever utter the words, I just couldn't believe people are capable of that. What? Oh, yeah. They're capable of that all day long. All day long. That's always been going on. And it's going to continue to go on. And don't be shocked that it's going on because that's the world we live in. It's twisted. That's what a twisted world is. So we ignore it, and then it hits us in the face. Now watch what we do. Then we are absolutely surprised when it does. Oh, oh my goodness. Now, notice the response. Every single thing I've seen about that particular instance is this. Now we're in, it never fails, blame mode. How did this happen? Whose fault is it? There were warning signs all along. Uh, I have a question. So you're telling me that it's the middle literally of nowhere and there's some guys living surrounded by tires and you thought what they were running a daycare preschool what did we think here what are what, what are we what are we doing hmm? so what I'm saying is is there any possibility that that's happening in your neighbor's yard and you're going hmm look at what Bob's doing over there well that's interesting huh no no one's doing that and it's immediately we go into blame mode. Whose fault is it? Who overlooked it? Who missed it? Who? Why, what, why are we doing that? Why are we obsessed with blame? Because the world's getting better. And anything that points to the fact that the world's not getting better, we don't have a way to deal with it, so we blame. It must be someone's fault. It must be someone as if, if we had ultimate surveillance over every square inch of the globe, which I'm pretty sure we do, but let's just suppose we don't. If we had that and someone was watching every, then no evil would happen. You're delusional if you believe that. You are delusional. It's happening. And it's going to keep happening. And it's not going to stop happening because the world is broken. And that's what broken things do. They don't operate like they're supposed to, so don't expect them to. We're puzzled. Look, look, at, look at what we do. We, are, we think that if, if, if we go to small towns, these are, I'm just picking on the insane things that, that, that the culture does. If you're in a small town, it's pleasant and safe places where horrible things don't happen. It just drives me crazy. It just makes my head want to blow up. So let's just have a quick conversation. So every single time that they discover this closet psycho that has five ladies chained up in his basement, it's in a small town. 
Isn't it? It's always in a small town. Every single time it's in a small town. You know why it's in a small town? For the same reason those fruitcakes built their thing in the middle of the desert. If you're going to do something super whacked out, you're going to go where there's the least people paying attention to what you're doing, which is going to be a small town. That's what you're going to do. You're not going to roll up in the middle of Manhattan and start stacking your tires up in a circle. That ain't going to work real good. Plus, you don't want to get mugged. It's just crazy. And don't let me get wound up about natural disasters, Lord help us. I mean, if there's, a, if there's an earthquake, there's absolute panic and shock. If there's a hurricane, if there's a tornado, if there's a forest fire. I mean, you turn the te television on or you talk to anybody and everyone's in a state of panic and, and it's a big and, I, and I'm thinking, hold on, time up, time up, hold up, hold up. All right. So let's just see if I get this straight. Now, the southern part of the United States is prone to hurricanes. We know that. And the Midwest is prone to tornadoes. We know that. And the West is prone to earthquakes. We know that. So if there's a hurricane in the South or a tornado in the Midwest or an earthquake in the West, help me understand, why are we shocked? Don't we know that? We know that. We should be shocked when there's not a hurricane because hurricanes come here, right? But when a hurricane comes... What does everybody do? Well, God must be judging the world. Well, not exactly. Like, he did that, but that was a way long time ago. And these are just the aftershocks of all of that. And we start wanting to blame everything. And, then, and so now, we you see, if you believe that the world is careening towards perfection on its own, then you, it necessitates you must have a scapegoat. So, what are we going to do? Who are we going to blame for the hurricanes and the tornadoes and the <gasps> global warming? There you go. Solve the problem. That's what's wrong. It's that's so global warming. If we can just stop global warming, there won't be any more hurricanes. I mean, it's like you, we live in bozo land. I don't know what's happening. Listen, don't ever say, well, we haven't had a hurricane for a while, so we're due one. What does that even mean? You live where there's hurricanes. So, I know you don't want to hear this, but there's going to be another one. I'm not a prophet. There's going to be another one. Okay? And if you move away, wherever you move, there's going to be something there. So, good luck with it. You're not getting away from it because you live on a sphere that's spinning in the, in, the, in the cosmos that is broken. And if you try to operate a broken thing as if it's not broken, it ain't going to work. So you just keep having to fabricate more and more bigger ways to keep pushing this, this agenda of insanity forward. So 
In both cases, doesn't matter, whatever it is, it's always the same response. We answer the question, why? Why did this happen? Well, why did it happen? What, what? I, don't, I don't understand the question. Why did this happen? It's, and listen, I'm not saying that these things aren't horrible and they break my heart. But when a kid walks into a school and kills 25 people, I am literally heartbroken. But I am in no way shocked. And nor should you be. What, is, what shocks you about that? What, who lives in a world where you think that children that grow up parentless and directionless in this world aren't going to walk into schools and shoot people up? I mean, come on. It's just, we need to just realize. So, everything's a blame shift, isn't it? It is. So it doesn't matter what you, it doesn't matter what's going on. It's never anyone's fault. The gun killed him. It's the gun's fault. It's, It doesn't matter what you do to get in trouble. The only thing that matters is now that you've broken the law and gotten in trouble, you're being mistreated. You see, it just goes on and on and on. It's insanity. And it's supposed to be insanity. So the consequences of all this, I'm done. The consequences of all this is... That, I'm sorry, yikes, there you go, sorry, okay. Fill in the blank. You got to wave when they're not there. See, I didn't put who can we blame for it because we've now moved into the realm of such absurdity that we're, we literally are now blaming inanimate objects This is new. Like right when I think it can't go any further, we're now blame shifting to inanimate objects are responsible for the evil deeds of mankind. It's shocking. So the consequences of all this basically is rejecting the doctrine of original sin and denying the curse upon which every created thing is under is that it leaves us no way out. You see, what happens is, man, is that, that Satan has basically pushed us into a checkmate. Well, not us, but the world. He is, it's such an a, a ingeniously orchestrated plan, this whole idea of this progression, this, what started with Darwinism and has now become the doctrine of progress, is think about it. It walls you in, and it shields you and and keeps you from the gospel. And here's how it does that. If you just think. Now, so if everything's getting better, which it's not, but things continually keep happening that are screaming, it's not getting better, it's not getting better, it's not getting better. See, we think, that, we think that the more technology we have, the better it gets, and hello, it's not working. But we can't say that because 
It doesn't fit into the worldview. So we have to come up with something else. So when evil happens... So basically, this is, this, is, this is what I think. I think that I think that I could have the world's shortest tenure as a uh, network anchor. Be like one segment and I'd be fired. But just give me that one, just give me that one, just give me the mic on CNN one time. Just for a minute. It'd be a YouTube sensation. Probably be, get 20 million death threats, but it'd be fine. But... No one comes in after the, the school shooting or the tire village in the middle of the thing or whatever. Nobody's getting on TV and saying, now here's the situation. What we have is evil people who are twisted by sin. And the only solution to this is repentance. It's the only solution. But why would you repent if it's not your fault? You see, the, the, the prerequisite to repentance is ownership, right? See, I can't repent for your sin. You can't repent for mine. But if it's not my fault, if it's somebody else's fault, if it's something else's fault, then here's what happens. There's no chance for repentance or restoration. There's no way back to solid ground. Because we're stuck in the quicksands of human enlightenment. As long as we believe that human enlightenment is going to come up with an ingenious way to keep protecting us out of things and resolving things. I mean, listen, we, we, we've only scratched the surface, folks. Okay? We've only scratched the surface. We've got to get moving, but it's just, I just want you to realize what you're seeing. Go on. Like, I'm all for so many, there's so many great things happening. The problem is they're motivated by bad things. You know what I mean? It's crazy. All right. Anyway, I got I to gotta, I gotta move. All right. So we should remember that God declares throughout Scripture that he's going to make the world right once again. He's going to do that. That's the only way it's going to happen. Therefore, any attempt to create utopia here is futility. It's futility. What we've got to do is we've got to drink a dose of reality and go, listen, this is never going to be paradise, okay? So let's just wake up, smell the coffee, and get into reality. You're never going to live in paradise. You're never going to live in total peace, comfort. That's not going to happen, so stop trying to do it. And so what we live in a culture that's running around and literally exists, the, everything, this, all the materialism and everything in the culture is predicated on literally making your tent paradise. It's a stinking tent. Stop fooling with your tent. There's a building made for you in heaven that wasn't made with human hands. This is a tent. Stop fooling with it. Don't be, don't, why are you shocked when your tent rips? It's a tent. Right? No, I mean, I spent a lot of time in tents. Nobody's shocked when it's ripped. Nobody's shocked when it's uncomfortable. Nobody's shocked when, nobody's shocked. One time I was in a tent in a giant hailstorm. It was amazing. Probably I thought I was going to die. The tent literally looked like Swiss cheese. 
I'm in the tent. At some point, I'm realizing, what, do, what, uh, what am I doing? I'm taking shelter in a tent. It's a tent. You live in a tent. It's not your home. What kind of a psycho goes into a temporary dwelling place and invests their life in redecorating it and working it and orchestrating it, trying to make everything to your comfort? It's temporary. It's temporary. Jesus, the king, got involved. That's what happened. The king left the throne room of heaven and came down and got into our situation. He came down and guess what he did? He set a tent up with us. He tabernacled among us. He camped right beside us. The reason that we have hope is not because we're going to figure it out or work our way through it or things are going to get better. It's because the king came and set his tent up and he's going to fix it. That's the solution. So this is the most important part. How do we respond to the world around us, the evil around us? So please listen closely and please take this in because you can, you, you're, you're effect, you're, your effectiveness in the gospel, you are created as an agent of light, an ambassador of this king. Don't squander that opportunity. And if you don't understand this, if you're running around buying into this craziness that's going on around us, you're going to have, your message is not going to be heard. It's not going to be heard. you got to understand this. The call of the gospel is for the church to implement the victory of God in the world. You got that? The victory has already been had. So what we're doing is we're walking in the victory in the brokenness, right? So, but there's a delay, but that's okay. So I'm in a tent, but I got a building. And so I'm living in a bunch of tent dwellers, but I got a building. Now all the other tent dwellers don't have buildings. Only my brothers and sisters have buildings. So there's a group of us that are living in tent villages that have buildings. And you got to have that mindset. you got to understand who you are when you enter into the tent. Because if you get caught up in tent modification, it's going to be a disaster. Well, basically, you'd be in the prosperity gospel. See, the cross is not just an example to be followed. It's an achievement to be worked out and put into practice. You see, what Jesus accomplished on the cross is for us to implement and practice that achievement. We are to put that into practice. We are to take what he did, and we are to be agents of that action. So, how do you do that? Well, the suffering love of God. The suffering love of God. The suffering love of God. Do you know what people who devote their lives to tent modification hate? Suffering. They do not want to admit they live in a tent. They do not want to think about it being a tent. They are doing everything in their power to try to, to, to convince everybody that it's going to be this, it's going to last, it's going to go good, everything's going to be fine, we're going to figure all this out. Mm -mm. The suffering love of God lived out by the Spirit in the lives of God's people is a God-given answer to the evils of the world. You see, when we go as little Christ into the tent villages and we love people with the suffering love of Jesus, the way he loved, and we're willing to 
humble ourselves as Jesus did. You see, everybody loves it when we're talking about Jesus, but then when it talks about us doing what he did, we get a little bit... Uh, you see, it's, it's based on his example. The way he implemented the work of God on earth, is what, that's what we do. That's how we live. So suffering and martyrdom, putting ourselves behind others, this paradoxical existence. Other people begin to be awakened to the reality of the gospel when we live it out rightly, when we reject the nonsense of the world in which we live in. We've got to remember that this world is not the way God intended it to be forever. It's not going to be that way. And so every time that something inside of you wants to be shocked at evil, okay, I, this is what I want you to remember. Evil is a four-letter word, and so is love. And rather than investing all of our emotion in being shocked at evil, why don't we invest our emotion and invest our energy in being purveyors of love? See, my job is not to save the world. Your job is not to save the world. Your job's to share the gospel with the people around you. And how exactly are you going to do that? You're going to love them. If you don't love them, nobody's listening to anything you say. You're going to love them. Love. Love is what overcomes evil. Jesus overcame evil by love. And he didn't love who loved him back. He loved his enemies. He loved his adversaries. So we work it out. Day in, day out. Understanding that everything around us is broken. So, so I think, Lord, you know, every year at this time I go, oh boy. I'm watching the tropics, not because I don't think there's going to be a hurricane. Because I know there's going to be a hurricane. And every year we don't have a hurricane, I'm like, whew. But I know there's one coming. And why am I concerned about a hurricane coming? Because I know it's coming, and when it comes, here's what I know. It's going to be a grand stage for love. And so I want to be prepared for that. I want to be prepared for that. The same way I want to be prepared for whatever else broken happens, whether it's broken humans, broken creation, broken it's broken. It's broken. So if we just implement the victory achieved on the cross by being ambassadors of the solution whose name is Jesus. And guess what? He's infinitely better. He's infinitely better. 
You don't have to build him up. You don't have to polish him up. You don't have to shine him up. All you got to do is walk out there into the tent village and introduce people to the one who is infinitely better. He's, he's so amazing that even if you have to spend the rest of this life in, in a tent village, it's worth it. And if everybody around you doesn't understand it and reject it's worth it. He's worth it. He's worth it. You see? So I'm sorry that uh, I ruined the news for you for the rest of your life. It wasn't already ruined or whatever. But every conversation you have, every person you meet, just keep in mind that the Bible has told us exactly what we ought to be expecting. And it's exactly what we're seeing right now. Exactly. So the only people who ought never be shocked are us. And I'm embarrassed to say that the church, Big C Church, is doing a very poor job of this. And more times than not, they're buying into the false doctrines of the culture. And they think that by adopting their ideologies, they can get their message out. But here's the problem. If you adopt their ideology, you have no message. You have no message. Because nobody's repenting for something that's not their fault. 